All right, Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Let's pray, and we'll open up the Word together. Father, I'm so thankful that there are, in this day and age, still people who are hungry for your Word, that have come uh, not just out of ritual or routine. And I know there are some that may have come for that, re- for that reason, Lord. Maybe some have come just because they're, they're doing a favor for somebody else. They don't really want to be here, but they're here. Uh, but I pray, Lord, that, that they would discover you here in the pages of your word. And for those that are here because they're hungry and thirsty for your word and, and for your presence, I pray you'd fill us, Lord. We still believe uh, that you are uh, who you say you are, And we still believe that your word is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we're here opening your pages because we believe it's important, because we believe it's truth, and because we believe that truth is good for our souls every day. So it's uh, it's in your son's name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Gospel of Mark chapter 6, as we continue to make our way... uh, slowly, (laughs) but very strategically through the Gospel of Mark. We have uh, watched Jesus call his disciples. He's chosen them by hand. They're not the guys we might have expected him to choose. This is a rough-and-tumble group of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. And they have been with him. That's what he called them to do, to be with him primarily. But then what else is the, the next part of the plan for them? Not just to stay with him, not to be perpetual students, but that he might send them out. And so we see some important lessons today. Two things we'll notice today in particular. Number one is that uh, Jesus uh, oftentimes gets rejected, and so will we when we represent him. And the hardest thing is that uh, when we get rejected by our own families. And so the hardest place sometimes, uh, oftentimes, to share the truth that we've been learning, the life that we've been living in Christ, the hardest place to share that is with the people that know us best. And so that's lesson number one. And lesson number two is there comes a time in our lives where we stop being students and roll up our sleeves and get out and begin to do the things we've been learning. Now some people in the educational world become perpetual students. They go to They graduate high school, go to college, go to grad school, get a master's degree, then go continue on school, get a PhD, and then get another PhD and whatever, and just continuing as students all their lives. And it's like, when are you ever going to do the thing you've been studying? And sometimes I feel like that about church. I look around sometimes and I see some are perpetual students, always learning, always learning, always learning, but never actually engaging in ministry. And and I came across this quote this week. I was thinking about this as my own kids get ready to head off to college this week. I was thinking about how how birds teach their their young to fly. Sometimes, what do they have to do? Got to kick them out of the nest. They can fly; they just don't know it yet. But they have to have that push to fly. And the the best thing sometimes you can do for people is push them out of the nest so that they can learn that they actually know how to fly. And this was the quote I found. Why does the thrill of soaring have to begin with the fear of falling? Isn't that a great quote? Why does the thrill of soaring have to begin with the fear of falling? But it does oftentimes. And so the second lesson we learn from Jesus, this, uh, from Mark chapter 6, is that there comes a time to put down the books, roll up your sleeves, and, and start doing the thing you've been learning about. So, With that said, with those two lessons in our minds, 
We begin to read uh, in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. So where is there? There is chapter 5. Chapter 5 has us in Capernaum, Jesus uh, healing, uh, well, raising from the dead the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, his daughter, who was a 12-year-old girl. He raises her from the dead. And in the midst of that story, we had the other uh, woman with the issue of blood with it hemorrhaging, uh, bleeding, and she had reached out by faith to touch Jesus. So these are the things that have happened in Capernaum. And he grabs his boys and he says, hey, let's head on down to my hometown, which is where? Now, some of you are going to say Bethlehem because you know that's where Jesus was born. And that's true. However, Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth. So that would be where is the place that's being spoken of when he says his own country. He means his own area, his own region, his own town, and that is Nazareth. Now, you have to know a few things about Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth is a very, very small village. At Jesus' time, uh, scholars estimate 500 people. It's not on a trade route, uh, so it's not a very uh, uh, prosperous village. It's a very poor village, an agricultural village. And this is where God in the flesh was raised in, in Nazareth. So we even see in the Gospel of John when um, Philip introduces his friend Nathaniel to the fact that they had found the Messiah, the one that was spoken of in the Old Testament. And he says, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel kind of hears, he, he misses the Jesus part and just hears of Nazareth. And he says, hey, wait a second. You're telling me you found the, the promised one, the Messiah, and he's from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So that's the way people felt about that village. And so this is Jesus' hometown. Like it or not, that's where he was raised. That's where people know him. That's where they saw him playing on the streets. That's where the carpentry shop was. That's where he worked with his dad. Uh, and this is the people that knew him. And so that's where they're heading. This wouldn't be his first visit back there since his ministry started. He went there very early in his ministry. Luke chapter 4 tells the story. He goes into the synagogue. He's invited to stand up and to read from the scroll of Isaiah. He reads about setting the captives free. He reads about, you know, sight to the blind and the oppressed and uh, the being freed. And they try to kill him for it. They, they say, we're going to, this guy, who is, you know, he's just, he's just a guy from Nazareth. I mean, who, who does he think he is? And they attempt to throw him off of a high a high peak there to kill him. So now he's coming back to where they tried to do him in the first time. And in some ways, Nazareth is getting a second chance. This is toward the end. Now we're, toward the, only, we're only in chapter 6, but we're close to the end of Jesus' ministry. And he's going back to where he'd been rejected before by his own family. And, and I think that, uh, that that is so like the Lord to give people second chances and third chances and fourth chances. A lot of people, when they first hear the, the gospel, they don't accept it. They reject it. Uh, but there can be second chances. And so maybe someone in here, maybe for you, it's a second or a third or a fourth chance, and you're hearing these things. You've rejected it for a long time, and maybe today will be different. But let's see what happens for the people in Nazareth. They had rejected him the first time. Uh, let's see what happens now. Verse 2 says, And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, 
the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? And are, these not, are, are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. The word offended is an interesting word, uh, scandalizo. In the Greek, it is scandalized. And it's the, the, the uh, scandalizo is the, 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 um, the stick that was sort of like the trip stick of, the, of a trap. If you set a trap for an animal and there's all, the box is held up by that little stick and when you hit that stick, it, it closes the trap and it would, it would be a stumbling block, literally. Uh, something that would make you trip or get trapped. And so Jesus to them, it says... Because of some of these things that they're saying about him, they were actually offended. They were scandalized by what he was saying. So what is it that was the problem? Not necessarily just what he was saying. They were, and the word literally is flabbergasted. That's a better translation. Astonished is good. Flabbergasted. It's like getting punched in the face and it kind of knocks you senseless for a minute. Like out of your senses. That's how they felt when they heard Jesus teaching. But it wasn't just what he was teaching it was about who he was. Because how do they know him? They know him as just Jesus, the common carpenter. I mean, this is just a, a normal guy. We all know him. And the fact that he was so familiar to them, and the fact that he was just a carpenter, they, they couldn't get past it. They couldn't accept what he had to say because they knew who he was. Uh, f- as, a, as a young child, they saw him grow up. They, they just, he was just Jesus. And he was only a carpenter. In other words... He didn't grow up in a rabbinic family, studying the Torah with the greatest teachers. I mean, we sometimes equate wisdom with education, don't we? How many of you know that there are some people that have a lot of education and no sense? And the Bible actually tells us that if you know God's word, you have more wisdom than your teachers. Take that one to school with you. I mean, you can know a lot of facts and still be ignorant about the basic truths of life. And I love this. The Word of God gives understanding to the simple. And so you can see maybe someone who doesn't have a a, uh, high education from the world standpoint but understands the Word of God can actually be uh, wiser than someone who has three PhDs in a way. Wiser about about life in this world, about what the world is about, about what life is about. So they see Jesus as, well, he's just this carpenter. This is, where, this is what's stumbling them. Where did, and notice, this man. They didn't expect it from this man. Because this man is just a carpenter. He works with his hands. And by the way, carpenter is, is an okay translation of the word tectone. It actually means one who creates or an artist or an artisan or a craftsman. So likely Jesus worked in wood, but when we, we go to Nazareth on our trips to Israel, and guess what stuff is made out of in Israel? Stone. So it can mean carpenter, but it also can mean craftsman or stonemason. So I just ruined all the pictures for you of Jesus as a carpenter. He was likely a a stonemason who also knew how to work with wood and had other abilities. And they serviced the town there in Nazareth. He was just a common guy from a very common city or village. Just a a nothing, a nobody from nowhere. And, And so where did this man get these things? These things he taught were awesome. And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? So they had heard what he'd been doing, raising the dead, healing the sick, lepers being healed, uh, and they just could not put it together in their minds. You know the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. 
to have contempt for something is to not appreciate or respect its power or position. And so because when, when you're really familiar with someone, when you know their faults or you know where they're from or you know them personally, sometimes it's, uh, you can have a less respect for them. When you get familiar, then oftentimes it, it changes the way you feel about someone or something. Think about this in terms of driving and kids. Now, I have two kids. Both of them drive. And I remember when they got their driver's license, I said, well, now you are officially licensed to operate a weapon. Vehicles are dangerous. And kids know it when they start out driving. I mean, they are really nervous behind the wheel, are they not? I mean, they are just glued white knuckles and they don't know how to operate this thing. It's all very new. It's all very strange and unfamiliar. But then uh, a little time passes and then they think they got this thing mastered, like a week, right? And they've got this thing called a car mastered. And so pretty soon, you know, the window's down, the music's going, the arm's out. You know, I've, I've been driving a week now. I got this thing kicked, you know. I'm pretty good. And, and, then, the, and then, then I can drive with one hand and, or my knee and I can send my text while I'm driving. And I got this car thing is easy until, boom, there's an accident. Well, what happened? Familiarity bred contempt. I, was so, I felt very familiar, very comfortable, and I lost respect. And then once the accident happens, then all of a sudden, ooh, I, had, I hate to say, I had four accidents by the time I graduated high school. Whoa. Now, that was not good because I was just... A lousy driver, I guess. <laughs> not paying attention, not respecting the vehicle, changing the, the station. And we didn't have texting back then, but I, I lost respect for the vehicle. But then when you have an accident, then all of a sudden, ooh, there's this, uh, this enlightenment or this higher respect. Th- same thing with uh, guys in here that work with tools or, or women maybe that work with uh, power tools. That when I buy a new power tool, the first thing that happens is it comes with this thing called a guard on it. That goes off in the trash can right away. Take that guard. I'm not suggesting you do that. Look, I still have all the fingers today. But if you stop, maybe accidents happen, but you can easily be working with power tools or a dangerous place, and you can begin to lose respect for those. And then all of a sudden, they come back to to bite you when you're not paying attention, when you stop giving them the respect that's due, the power. And the same thing is with Jesus, because he was from Nazareth, because they, they only knew him as this carpenter guy. They knew his... Matter of fact, they also say... He's the son of Mary. Well, that's a, that's, you don't pick that up because we go, oh, son of Mary, Christmas time, Christmas story. We pick it up uh, a different way. They would have picked it up as, don't you remember, he's the son of Mary. Remember, he was born illegitimately before she and Joseph were married. So that is a kick against him. That's a cut against him. In other words, he is a nobody. What could this guy possibly have to tell us about anything spiritual? Now, you may know that feeling. Maybe it's, maybe it's your family. Maybe it's where you grew up. And, you, you know, they know you grew up. The, the people you went to school with, they know you. And, then, and your parents know you all too well or your children know you all too well. And then you get saved. And all of a sudden now, you're trying to tell them spiritual things. And like, wait a second. You know, what, what is going on here? Who are you to tell us about spiritual things? You're, you know, I remember, I remember when I was diapering you. And now you got saved and you're trying to tell me what truth is. You know, that might be what a, a parent would say to a child who gets saved. An unsaved parent might say that to a child. And so, and I've seen, I've seen families, very dysfunctional families, where one person in that family gets saved, begins to walk with the Lord, and then they go back and try to tell others in their family about the truth in Jesus Christ and what happens. It's not really received very well. Oh, so you, now you're the Bible thumper, huh? 
Oh, so now you're the one who, you know, what do you, now you're trying to tell us what's true, and well, who do you think you are? And, and there's this dysfunctional family type of thing where they try to pull you back down by saying, hey, you can never be anything other than what you've been. You ever experienced that? You, you, maybe you grew up, your parents telling you you're never going to amount to anything, you'll never be anything, you'll never know anything, and you grew up thinking that. Let me tell you what, in Christ, you can know a whole lot. And here's the coolest thing, is this is how God chooses to work. Because he wants to work through these broken vessels. He wants to work through the low and the disrespected. And you can read it right there in 1 Corinthians. Not many mighty, not many powerful actually get saved. They're too smart for that. It's the, it's the ones that are willing to accept Jesus, the ones that are low and needy and, and not well thought after and disrespected. When they get saved and God begins to use them, other people go, how in the world is that working? I mean, he didn't even, he didn't even graduate high school. I, there's a guy that pastors a Calvary Chapel out in San Diego. He got saved after an LSD trip, thought, thought he shot half his brain out, thought half his brain was missing. Pastor's one of the biggest churches in the country now. There are some CDs we have out here in the hallway. I don't think there's any left of, a, of a, the testimony of a family called the Yuan family from Coming Out Again Ministries. This young guy, he uh, was supposed to go to dental school. His dad has two PhDs. And he was going on to dental school. He got into a homosexual lifestyle, got into drugs, got into drug dealing, got into supplying drug dealers, ended up with the marshals knocking on his door. Six years he gets in prison. During that time, he gets saved. And from prison, he applies to Moody Bible Institute. And now, he is a professor at Moody Bible Institute. You want to talk about the work of God. And so Jesus, they, 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 just, can't, they just can't deal with it. So they were offended at him because they just couldn't put it together. And he says to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. So when a person speaks for God, they can go all these other places and, and, and what they have to say and who they are is respected. That's speaking for God. That's what a prophet is, someone who speaks for God. But then it's in your own, where you grew up, it's with your own family, it's with your own parents, it's with your own kids that they don't want to hear what you have to say because you're just dad or you're just mom. And they don't want to hear. So that's just, this, this is just a proverb that was very familiar. And Jesus says this proverb is true of him. And if it's true of him, gang, will it be true of you as well? Absolutely, absolutely. Sometimes the hardest people to reach are your own family. Now verse 5 says, He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So because they wouldn't believe, because they wouldn't accept him for who he was, because they couldn't, you know, hash this out, in their mind, they, they didn't even bother coming to him. He said, we're not even going to bother because we don't believe he is who he says he is. We, we can't accept it. And so they wouldn't come to him. And this is amazing. Look at this. Verse 5 says, now he could do no mighty work. The word uh, no is really not even one. Not even one. And the word could is the same word we translate power. He was powerless to do even one mighty work there. And then there's the little exception clause, as if it's a small thing, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. So there were a few in Nazareth that would come, but the vast majority of people in his hometown, just it's not that he was like, there was kryptonite there, and all of a sudden his power was being sucked from him by the people of Nazareth. He still had power, 
It's just that no one would tap into it. No one would come to him like the woman with the issue of blood that we talked about last week, like Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. They just wouldn't come because they didn't believe it. Those that come to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Everything in God's economy comes by faith. If you don't believe, you won't come. And, and we can sit here and talk about these things and you can nod your head and say, oh yes, pastor, we agree. And then walk out of here and never actually trust God for anything. And I offer invitations and come down if you want to know the Lord and oh, I got all these problems in my life, but I'm not willing to come to him. I'll figure it out on my own. Or I'll go to this counselor. Or I'll go to this psychologist. Or I'll go to this thing. Or I'll try this deal over here. And I'll, I'll get the self-help books. And you'll do anything except coming to Jesus to be saved and to be healed. And that's what the problem is. So, so his, the release of power, remember when the woman touched him? He said, I felt power go out from me. But here, no power going out. Why? Because they're not coming to him. Just these few people. And verse 6 says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. We've seen Jesus marvel. We've seen him marvel at faith. Oh man, your faith, wow. That he marveled at the faith of the guys that brought their friend to be, uh, to be healed. He was a paralytic. I believe it's mentioned of them that he, he, when he saw their faith. Wow. And you see people that believe. But he also marvels at unbelief. He doesn't marvel about our sound system. He doesn't marvel at our technology. He doesn't marvel at the outfits we wore. And Jesus marveled at the way they were dressed in church. Wow. Doesn't marvel about how many verses they've memorized. Although that's a memory verse is a good thing. Doesn't marvel that you've chosen the right translation of the Bible to read. He marvels at their faith. Or at their un- he just, so here he is in his hometown. His reputation has, has proceeded. Now he's there with his little entourage of, of, uh, of followers. And, and he says, man, you ever, you ever do that? You ever just marvel that you share your faith with somebody? You, it just so, to us, it's so plain and so easy, isn't it? I mean, it's like so obvious. You look at the world. You look at the way it's designed. You look at the way things are put together. And just go, it's simple to believe in God. And, you, and when I meet someone and they just resist and resist and resist, just go, man, I can't believe the, the unwillingness to accept. And that's how Jesus felt there. And so, he, you know, again, we say, I believe it when I see it. The Bible says you won't ever see it if you don't believe it. He marveled at their un- because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. So he gets up his disciples and, and they begin. To, he doesn't let that stop him. He doesn't let resistance. He doesn't let disrespect. He doesn't let rejection stop him. Too many people are stopped too easy by one, you know, by one little rejection. You know, so your family isn't on board with you. Don't let that stop you. Some of you grow, have, have been and are still in families where nobody believes, where you're the only believer in your family. And you pray and you hope and you share and it just keeps getting worse and worse. You'd think that maybe Jesus would have said, because of their unbelief, I'm going to stay here and do more miracles. I'm going to really press them to believe because this is my hometown. Uh, he, would, he should have stayed there longer and done miracles there, but he doesn't. They won't accept what he has to say. He doesn't pound it home. He doesn't argue with them. He just says, okay, I'll move on to where they will accept, and he, and he moved on. So sometimes, folks, you share, the, you share your faith, you share what you know, and then you move on. 
And that's what Jesus did. He continued. He didn't get discouraged by it. He marveled at it, but he kept going. Verse 7 says, And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So here it is, folks. Here comes the push. This is the day they've been waiting for. It's time for a short-term mission trip. Now, they will get a long-term mission trip, won't they? At the end of the Gospels, Jesus sends them out and says, Go out into all the world and preach the Gospel to every nation, making the baptizing, making disciples. But that's not now. Right now, they're still wet behind the ears. They're still just learning. But part of learning is doing, isn't it? Part of learning, I mean, when I learned to trade, I, I spent a lot of time with my eyes open and my mouth closed. And that's the way you start learning. And I love to learn. And I hope you love to learn. And you spend your first little time with your eyes open and your mouth closed. You know, in other words, asking questions, yes, but not telling someone how to do it, how you think it should be done. You learn. And then there's a time in, in discipleship where you, as a discipler, you step aside and give that person a chance to try to do the things they've been learning. This is what church is all about, isn't it? A lot of churches are, are squashed by pastors and leaders who are controlling. Jesus is empowering other people to do ministry on his behalf. And sometimes, if we're going to be in a church that's going to grow, then we have to be willing to step aside. We have to be willing to learn something, to know something, then to teach others that something we've learned about Christ, and then to step, inside, step aside and encourage them to push them out of the nest, so to speak, right? And sometimes the best thing, I mean, when I got started teaching my first Bible study, I was part of a men's group, and the guy who was leading it was going on vacation. How dare he? And he looked at me and said, Steve, I see the Lord's doing something in your life. I had never led a Bible study before. I, don't know, I think he was, I don't know what he was doing, but he, I figured he had missed it completely, but he said, I want you to teach while I'm away. I said, no way. Uh-uh, absolutely not. You got the wrong guy. And he said, well, too bad. He pushed me, and so I taught my first Bible study under much duress in a men's group. And then it was another, and so it was, it was he had to put, I wouldn't have done it myself. He had, took him to push me into it. And so now the disciples like, okay, guys, time to roll up the sleeves. All this stuff we've been learning, all the stuff you've been watching me do, now it's your turn. They're going to go out in teams of two, six teams of two, to these different villages around Nazareth and around the region there. And they're going to do what they've been watching him do. And that's called a short-term mission trip. And there's sometimes for you where you've been learning, you've been soaking it in, and it's time for you to now actually do something with what you've been learning. To tell someone else what you've been learning. To tell someone else what you've been experiencing. And that's a good thing. So two by two, he sends them out. The word send is the word where we get apostle. They go from being disciples to becoming apostles. They're being sent out. That's what apostle means. They're sent out. Then the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts sends other people out. And so still, are there apostles today? Absolutely. Anybody who is sent out to preach the word, to tell people about God, is an apostle in, in that sense. Never more in the sense of, of these guys. It's a different kind of ministry. These guys were the apostles of Jesus. Now we're apostles of the Holy Spirit, sent out by the Spirit of God to do ministry. And I, I love to see those of us in this church being sent out uh, to places. 
And he sends them out two by two. Uh, that's kind of a nice thing because it's hard being alone. If you, if it's hard to defend yourself sometimes. Uh, it's nice to have someone there with you uh, to share and to encourage you. That's important. And this is the most important thing. He sends them out and he gives them power, which is the word exousia, which means authority. They are now acting on his behalf as if he is there himself. They represent him. The authority is not their own. The power is not their own. You can't do anything. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do a little bit. Apart from me, you can do some good things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so he gives them power, gives them authority over unclean spirits. And so they're teaching, they're preaching, and they're healing. We find that out as we go on. And he commands them, this is the challenge, right? He commands them to take nothing for the journey. Wait a second, we're going to need some stuff. I mean, if we're going to go do ministry in your name, we're going to need moon bounces, lights, fog machines, big time sound system, a big budget. Well, he did say they could, he could, take, they could take their staff. So the secretary, uh, the office manager, the assistant pastors, they can all go. The staff, no, that's not what he meant by staff. He meant walking stick, right? Take your walking stick because you're going to be walking. You're going to be traveling. Um, but interesting, no bag. Uh, that would have been a bag, what would have been called a beggar's bag. They're not taking any bread, no food with them, so there's not going to be anything that they're going to have to carry in a bag. So if they took a bag, that would have been to, to beg for money. Because let me tell you this, you know, there's a lot of false people sent out today in the church. There's a lot of people that claim to be speaking for God, and they're not. And if they're begging you for money, they're not of the Lord. Jesus tells them, I want you to take nothing. Now, there will come a time later on where they are supposed to take some things. But he says to them at this time, this is in the Gospel of Luke after the Lord's Supper, he, he reminds them before he sends them out for the long-term trip, he says, when, you, when I sent you out with no bag and no money and, and no food, did you lack anything? And they say, no, we lack nothing. So they're learning early on in ministry. The same lesson I had to learn, the same lesson you have to learn, you can do a lot with nothing in ministry. We have this cloudy, foggy idea that somehow now we are dependent on all of these exciting things to reach people with the gospel, to reach people for Jesus. I am so thankful. Some of you are around here in the Palmyra school days. Anybody, just out of curiosity, anybody remember when we used to meet at the old Palmyra school, the little auditorium and our nursery was in a, in a hallway, in a drafty hallway. and I mean, it was, it was awful, but it was great. Do you know what I'm saying? We had nothing. We had a, our music was a CD player. And we struggled to find CDs that people could sing to because Bill and D, you guys were there. You remember that. We, we'd have these, you know, you'd find a CD to, to sing music to, and then all of a sudden there'd be this long guitar solo, you know, like, and, and we're all just standing around looking at each other like till the guitar solo is over. And then we start singing again. It was really, really challenging. I mean, I can't, that's just the beginning. We had no money. I mean, it's just, but it was great. I love Mother Teresa uh, has this great quote that I've memorized. And she says, we the unwilling who serve the unknowing are doing the impossible for the ungrateful. We have been doing so much for so long with so little that we're now qualified to do anything with nothing. I love that quote. I mean, it, it's exciting to me because later on, the disciples, the apostles, they're going to have some things. They're going to have church buildings. They have all these things as they go on and church continues. 
But we need to know, we need to remember, I needed to remember that you can do so much ministry without money. There's the most important things. Money's a great tool for ministry. Don't get me wrong. Money's a great tool. Buildings are very useful for ministry. But you cannot rely on those things for ministry. You don't need those things for ministry. The best things in life, as they say, are free, right? And the best things for ministry are free. And God is calling right now to say, Amen. I know it's his call. We, could do, we used to have, do, do ministry without all these things, and it's so great. And I love that about this passage because we have to know from the beginning that we, you, the simplest and the best ministries are just the, ministry, the one-on-one sharing of the truth, the one-on-one love. Love, there's no, you, you, you can love a person for free. You can encourage a person for free. You can share, the gospel is free of charge. Freely we have received, right? And how do we give? For nine ninety nine. Include, and, if you, and if you send now, we'll include this. You know. And we've tried to live that as a church. We, we don't charge for stuff, you know. And if we do charge, it's just to recoup the cost so we can continue to, to bless people. Because the gospel is free. And the gospel is foolish. And the gospel is the power of God to salvation. That's what Paul tells us in Corinthians. You have, they, they would... If you don't have the power of God, if you don't have the Word of God, you need all that other stuff to impress people. Then you need all that other junk. But if you have the, God, if you have the Word of God and the power of the Spirit, what else do you need? So he sends them out, and, and, and he says to them, in whatever place, verse 10, you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. So when you go, when someone invites you in, when someone wants to hear what you have to say, and I thank God for people that want to hear what we have to say, and they invite you to come and stay with them because there's no Motel 6 or Super 8 or those kind of things. You stayed in people's houses when you traveled. And so someone invites you to, don't look around and go, man, you know, Matthew, this place is a dive. Let's get out of here. We've got to find a better place to stay. We, we're apostles of Jesus. We need more. We need better digs than this. Get the helicopter started up so we can get on it with the next place we're going. No, he says, if, you, if someone invites you in, don't look around and be like, nah, we deserve better than this. Take what's given to you. Accept it. So a far cry from some of the ministries we see today, isn't it? Far cry from what some of the false apostles claim that they, you know, if, if, you, only, if you need to support my ministry because I need another suit, another airplane, another this and that, not what we see here in the Bible. Paul said, haven't I shown you that by laboring with my hands night and day to support the weak? That's what the apostle Paul says about ministry. Whatever house you enter, stay there till you depart from that place, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. So, okay, guys, we're in the huddle. You're getting ready to send out. They're still processing and digesting the fact. You know, I'm sure Peter's going, you said no food, right? No food? We can't take food? Still processing that, and they say, and now they say, well, some people are going to reject you. Just recognize that. Some people, when you, when you preach, when you talk, they're not going to believe what you have to say. And so when, you, when that happens, look, don't get blown out of the water by that. Don't get surprised by that. Don't get discouraged by that. Shake off the dust from your feet. In other words, you've been on their ground. That's still kind of the dust from their land uh, is, is on you. You shake that off saying, I have, we have discharged our responsibility. I've shared the gospel. And now it's, up, it's between them and God. I've said what I have to say. If they want to reject God, that's up to them. I'm moving on. I'm moving on. And so that's what they're to do. If somebody doesn't accept it, shake off the dust and move on. Assuredly, I say to you, 
it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So Sodom and Gomorrah, we know they got judged. Uh, evidently, there are uh, judgment is not equal across the board. Those that had more light, more truth, uh, may be judged more harshly in their rejection. Some people think, well, God's sending everybody to hell. God's not sending anybody to hell. People send themselves to hell by rejecting the answer, the truth, the salvation that God has provided for them. And the more you know and still reject, the worse offense it is. So if Sodom and Gomorrah had Jesus' disciples among them, had Jesus among them preaching, and they have, if they had seen the miracles, they would, then it would have been uh, easier for them to believe. So to reject, you know, if you're sitting here and you're hearing the word of God being read and shared and you still continue to reject, it could be worse off for you because you have more light. We know we live on this side of the cross. We've seen and we know Jesus has been resurrected. And so verse 12 says, so they went out. They actually finally did it. They didn't just have a meeting about going out. They didn't just have a meeting and decide how they were going to go out and plan to go out and talk about going out and talk about what would it be like to go out. They actually, hey gang, get this, they actually went out. So much of church life today is about coming in. We want people to come in. No, I want people to go out. It's great that you come in, get equipped, but then you go out. The ministry is not here. Some of it is. The ministry is there to the unbeliever, to the unsaved. And so they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So there was the, the word was first, their message of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. That was their message. And I want you to notice this real quick before we, we conclude. So they went out and preached. And, and the word that seems like such an insignificant word, doesn't it? But literally translated in the Greek, it's in order that. In order that. Now that changes a little bit, doesn't it? They preached in order that people should repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to change your mind. It means to change a change of mind that leads to a change of direction that leads to a change of life. So here's the deal. He didn't say, and they went out that people should be entertained. That, that people should enjoy themselves. And, and all that is fine and well. But the primary purpose of me sitting here preaching or teaching to you is that people would repent. That's the, that's the goal of preaching, not just to entertain you. I am trying by the power of the Spirit and through the Word of God to move you, to change your will, that you would come in here thinking one thing and that you will leave thinking something different. And that, that thinking differently will change the way you live and change the way future generations of your family live because now you have believed. That's what repentance is. They are confronted with the message of the gospel with the idea of people changing based on what they hear. That's the goal of preaching. Not to be humorous or funny or entertaining. All, I, I love humor. I don't, I'm not very good at it, but I, it's, very, it's a great tool in speaking. The greatest... I, I talk to people that say, they talk about the church they go to. What church do you go to? I go to this church. Oh, yeah, how do you like that? Oh, we love our church. The pastor's so funny. And that's wonderful. But, you know, let the, let, I hope there's more to it than that. I, you know, you guys don't have that problem. Don't worry about it. Our pastor's not funny at all. When, when our, what, what would be awesome to say is when our pastor preaches, we feel the power of God in the Word. And it moves us. 
It causes me to change. That's a compliment. And so when they preached, this was their goal, that people uh, would, would be brought to a place of change. And to accompany that, they had these, the, the miracles were demonstrated, casting out demons, anointing with oil, and, and heal, sick people getting healed. And all this coming, not from their power. If you pray for someone and they get healed, like I pray for people and they get sicker. Anybody ever have that experience? I mean, you pray like great guns for somebody, you know, and then they end up dying. And you think, Lord, what is that all about, you know? Uh, it's not up to me. I, I, I believe the Word of God. I, I go about teaching the Word and, and praying for people to be healed and praying for people, uh, for their spiritual lives. And, but the power to do that is not from me. The power to do that comes from where? It's not me that healed. I was talking to someone the other day. I said, hey, we just started a healing ministry. I said, oh, yeah, how do you know? Like, are people getting healed? I mean, that's kind of not up to you, right? Isn't that a gift of God? the power of God. You can't decide to start a healing ministry. You can decide to start a prayer ministry and pray for people, but the healing ministry belongs to God. He gives gifts of healings, right? So that's how I cut through. That's how I understand this. Uh, that's what I see. I don't know how this, is, uh, how this has hit you today, but I'm going to invite Phil to come back up and we'll close um, in prayer. Maybe some of you, it's just time to, you've been sitting around here learning and getting fat on the Word, and it's time to actually Put these things to practice, to share your faith, to tell someone what you've learned. Uh, and I, You know, we're talking about planting churches in Italy. You know, in northern Italy, there are, there's no Bible teaching churches, very few. Who's going to go? Well, start here on a short-term deal, just sharing your faith in the downtown mall. Sharing your faith in these small little places. Sharing your faith with the kids in the children's ministry, in the youth ministry. That's a place to cut your teeth. And then you can go out and, and, and expand that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that it has moved people in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.